It's Monday, September 17th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 177 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thank you for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is without question a virtuoso of the highest order, one of the greatest clarinetists alive, David Krakauer. Let's have a listen. It's all there, people. Klezmer, classical tone, Evan Parker-like multiphonics. David Krakauer is the real thing, and he's with us today. Today on the show, David Krakauer. Before we get into it, look, uh, real quick, I want to say thank you to everyone who has uh, been pledging to the Patreon, who has continued uh, to be a Patreon donor, it helps. It helps and it means a lot. It means a lot to me. I, uh, I appreciate your generosity. And if you're enjoying this show, you want to check in and, 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 and help out, consider uh, going to patreon.com slash 5049podcast. Uh, as a bonus, if you're a Patreon donor at any level, you will have access to the entire archive. Uh, which at this point is 76 episodes of conversations. Uh, a lot of classic shit. The conversations with William Parker and Matthew Shipp are, are worth it alone. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in that archive. And sign up, become a Patreon donor. You'll be helping out the show, and you'll get to check in with all that stuff. Uh, so do that. I also want to say thanks to everyone who's been buying uh, Decay of the Angel. Thank you. I hope you guys are digging it. Um, that record's really important to me. It's really, really important to me, and I'm glad to be able to share it with you, and I hope you guys have been enjoying it. It's a record for solo clarinet, uh, which we were just hearing at the, at the top of the show. Look, today's a long one, so I want to get right into it. David Krakauer. What do you guys know? Do you know David Krakauer? I'd imagine that for many of you who listen to this show, uh, you know that you're in for a treat. You know that uh, today's show is a conversation with one of the greats. I'd also imagine that for many of you who, who come to this show by way of you know intense avant rock or, or maybe uh, free improvised music or you know, electroacoustic music, that maybe David Krakauer is not so much on your radar. David is uh, a, a musician who works at a level that very few people ever get to. I'm going to keep it short. Um, David's going to lay out a lot of biographical information for you. Uh, let me just say that, you know, when it comes to the Klezmer clarinet, uh, he's in the great canon, literally. You know, it's Naftuli Bronvine, Dave Terrace, and then a big gap. And then you have people like Andy Statman and David Krakauer. But David's much more than that. 
Um, you know, I've done several episodes of this show where I talk to other clarinetists, and I, I sort of throw caution to the wind uh, with how much we talk about the clarinet. And we, we avoid that pretty well today. I, I, I will say that um, the clarinet as an instrument doesn't lend itself particularly well to being a master at many different styles of music. To become a master at any style of music on the clarinet really requires uh, a lot of focus and, and physical ability that, you know, for most people, it's just it's, you, you can't really do all things. You know, a, a great classical player probably isn't going to have the improv chops. A great improviser is probably not going to have that pristine tone. And David is one of those rare guys who can straddle these worlds uh, and make it seem effortless. But it's a lifetime of work. For those of you who enjoyed the um, one of the very first uh, episodes of the 5049 podcast was with Anthony Coleman. It's one of the great episodes. We, I think we went for three hours. In some ways, today's episode is a continuation of that. Not only have David and Anthony known each other since they were 13, you dig, they have uh, a similar way of storytelling, and they have a similar uh, encyclopedic knowledge of a lot of different music. The tone of the conversation today is very similar to that, uh, that conversation with Anthony. And, and David shares stories from you know their, the two of their early days. It's a lot of fun today. There's a couple of things I should say uh, about today's show, just so you have a bit of context. Number one, uh, David and I talk a good bit about uh, Henri Akoka. Henri Akoka was the clarinetist who, uh, during World War II, was in the camp with Olivier Messiaen, was the clarinetist who premiered Quartet for the End of Time. We talk a good bit about Akoka. That's who he is. Akoka, his his career as a clarinetist is pretty much confined to that piece of music in terms of what the public perception of him is. But we talk about Akoka a bit. Let me also introduce you to the concept of the Jewish goodbye, as told by Mel Brooks. The French goodbye is you leave without saying goodbye. The Jewish goodbye is you say goodbye and never leave. Today's episode is a long one, but you know what? It went on for long after I turned the mics off. Long after I turned the mics off, David and I went back and forth, throwing stories at each other, going on YouTube, picking choice uh, performances, primarily by Lester Young, uh, but just really, really, really hipping each other to some choice shit, and it went on until the, you know, I had to say, look, man, I gotta I got, I got to walk my dogs. It was a blast. It was epic. We'll probably do it again. Do you need to know that for today's show? I don't know if you do. Dave Krakauer is one of the greats. Objectively, without question, very few people ever do what Dave does. Check him out. Go to davidcrackhour.com. If you're digging this show, go to the website, dip in, check out some past episodes, check out some music, and that's it. Uh, I hope you guys are doing well. Here's my conversation with David Crackhour. 
kid who began playing clarinet at a very young age and was, you know, recognized as a virtuoso at a very young age, uh, who made the decision at a very young age that he was going to be a classical clarinetist. Right. He uh, wanted to go to L.A. and study with uh, Yehuda... Yehuda Gilad, yeah. Yeah. And he made it his life's work. Right. He gets into McGill for undergrad. Right. You didn't hear about this? No. He gets his girlfriend. She's in love with him. They're in love. He auditions for Yehuda. Yeah. It goes very well. Uh, Yehuda emails him to say, congratulations, I want you to move to L.A. and study with me. Right. His girlfriend in Canada is terrified of losing him. So she hacks into his email intercepts the email, deletes it, creates a fake email address under Yehuda's name, emails her boyfriend to say, I'm very sorry, but you've not been accepted. And he'd been accepted with like a full financial ride, the whole thing. So he decides, you know what, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to move to LA and I'm going to study with Yehuda, even if it's, you know, me taking private lessons. Right. Two years down the line, Yehuda says to him, why was it that you first rejected me? And he said, I didn't reject you. You rejected me. I said, what are you talking about? And over the course of time, they put it together. Whoa. Years later that this woman had derailed his, uh, his career. But he wasn't with her anymore, no. obviously, because he moved to L.A. and then. Right. Yeah. So he sued her in Canadian court and the, for like a quarter of a million dollars. And the judge was so upset with what was presented to him that he sided in the guy's favor. Wow. And tacked on like another $100,000 in restitution. Holy shit. Whoa. (laughs) That's, but you know, I mean, that probably is, you know, he had full ride at, um, you know, uh, Colburn. Colburn, yeah. Which is like an incredible school. And like a million dollars a semester. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, yeah. Probably. No, well, Colburn is free. Okay. So, but it would be worth, like in any other sure. school, like, a, yeah. Yeah. Fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars, you know, <laughs> per per year. Yeah. So, you know, four years there, you figure, yeah. Could you imagine? That's insane. It's insane. That's insane. I mean, were you, uh, as a kid, were you, were you on, on the track of, of uh, young virtuoso? Totally. You're from, the, so you grew up in the Upper West Side. I grew up actually on the upper on the upper east side. Oh really? And then I moved to the west side when I was like twenty. Okay. Yeah. But you know, you've always lived uptown. I've lived uptown all the time, yeah. How old were you when you started playing? I started playing when I was ten years old. Yeah. And I went to a public school PS six. Where's that? On the, uh, upper east side? on the Upper East Side, yeah. Okay. And then I was able, uh, you know, to start studying clarinet, playing the band and the orchestra. And then my first teacher actually was teaching at PS6 at that time. Okay. A guy named Joel Press. Okay. Who still lives in Boston. He's still around. Yeah, he's in his, uh, I guess in his, he must be in his mid-80s by now. Um, and Joel was totally cool and he actually had grown up with my mother in brooklyn are you serious so they knew each other and then (laughs) yeah and then um and then uh you know joel started teaching me privately and joel was um a very fine jazz musician you know Uh uh tenor player and clarinet player and oh it's the best double yeah, yeah yeah and so he you know he would say stuff like 
you know, we used to cut school and go to the Apollo and hear the Ellington band. Well, he condoned you cutting school to go hear Ellington. No, no, he told me in the <laughs> mid forties. He oh, cut. Okay, okay, okay. He yeah. cut. He cut school. Okay. He would have condoned me cutting school too to go see Duke <laughs> Ellington. Duke Ellington. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I did actually get to hear Duke Ellington when I was a kid in New York City. Where at the at the Rainbow Grill. Oh, by uh, the at Sullivan Theater. Uh, well, the actually the Rainbow Grill is on the uh, top of the rock. Basically. Top of the rock. Right. 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 Yeah. So when I was a kid. Well, I'll get to that. Okay, okay, okay. But anyway, um, so... Uh, Did you dig the clarinet? Was it your idea to play that instrument, or...? Oh, well, what happened was, when I was 10, I had this opportunity to study music at mm-hmm. my school. And my mother said to me, um, you're way too old to play the violin, because she was a professional violinist. She did that for a living? Uh, yeah, she taught and uh-huh. played chamber so music. So she must have started at age four or five. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. So she said, by 10, you're, you know, you've no more reflexes. <laughs> you're an old man. Get you're out of here. You're an old man, buddy. <laughs> you know. So she said to me, uh, you should play a wind instrument. Why don't you play the clarinet or the flute? Uh, and so I started, so I sort of, I was a good boy, and I obeyed my mother, and I started with, you know, the clarinet. She said the clarinet first. Yeah. But also, sneakily, my parents were um, bringing home records of Rhapsody in Blue okay. and, and Mio's Creation of the World. Uh-huh. And so I was listening to, I think they had a record of... Benny Goodman playing the clarinet solo in the creation of the world. You know, when you hear those records uh, and, and the music from that time period, it, it's always fascinated me because it's it's very much, it's seemingly, because of the the frequency range of the clarinet, the way it cuts through a large group like that, you know, obviously it influenced the way they would play, but I always wondered about if, like, how how convenient it was for the composers to think about the clarinet in that role. Right. Well, um, I, I yeah. I mean, I, I guess the clarinet, you know, in the swing era, you know, and or even from the twenties, was kind of like, you know, I always think of the clarinet as the electric guitar of klezmer, and <laughs> yeah, and yeah. certainly in jazz. I mean, if we think the clarinet really had an incredible run from the twenties through the through the 40s, 40s or yeah. even through the early 50s. Yeah, Bebop came around and kind of waved goodbye to the clarinet. <laughs> yeah, but I saw like this, uh, there's this great like Count Basie sextet or septet yeah. from the early 50s with Buddy DeFranco oh. in the band. So, yeah. you know, still the clarinet, I think, had that had that cachet that, you know, that of course got established in the 30s but then lingered on into the 50s and i even remember as a as a young kid like in the early 60s going to shopping malls and hearing this sort of fake benny goodman trio like you know a vibes and a clarinet and uh, the drums uh-huh. or a piano or whatever sure. and i was like oh yeah the still the clarinet like in the mu- in muzak land <laughs> you know for the old folks, it's so so. You you enjoyed that music that your parents were bringing in the swing and big band stuff. Well, no, the thing was that you know, I, of course, like hearing the Rhapsody in Blue and 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 the creation of the world that captured my imagination for the instrument. Yeah, but then what sealed the deal was that when I was eleven, so I'd been playing for about a year, and then probably on the advice of Joel Press, uh, my parents got me a present. Um, 
of a Sydney Bechet, Bechet of New Orleans, mm-hmm. that RCA Victor Vintage record, and I freaked out. I heard. Uh-huh. You know what? What, what, what are you going to say? Well, I'm just wondering, you know, if, if your mother had this sort of very traditionalist idea about music, you were too old, <laughs> it's still funny to me, to play the violin, but she was okay with jazz and well questionable intonation well you know that's that's a whole other story yeah i I think i don't know i got that record i fell in love with bechet's playing you know just became enamored from the first how could you not note i heard yeah and i just felt like this is like you know my alternative father my teacher who i never met i mean yeah and Bechet, when I realized, you know, this was like 1967, and Bechet had only died like eight years earlier. You just missed him. Which was kind of crazy. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I got into the clarinet, was playing in elementary school and junior high school, went to the High School of Music and Art, and there I met Anthony Coleman. Yes. Yes. You guys went to high school together. We went to music and art together. <laughs> Yeah. Speaking of curious musical thinkers. Absolutely. Yeah. And so the and the way we met was that I had this beat up old soprano saxophone that uh, my teacher Joel Press had lent me. He gave it to you once he realized how into Bichet you were? Yeah, and he he had yeah. this thing lying around and it was uh, I it was uh, I think it belonged to a friend of his so it was sort of a permanent loan. Um and so I was music and art was on um, Convent Avenue and 135th Street. Like Harlem. Yeah. Yeah. And the other side of it was St. Nicholas Terrace. So basically, if you go, uh, you take the, let's say, the C train to 135th, you're at the bottom of the park, you mm-hmm. walk up that big hill, and on the top is the City College campus. Right, but right, and we're talking about yeah. yeah, and the first building you see is what they always called the Castle on the Hill High School of Music and Art, yeah. which is still a high school. It's called the uh, H. Philip Randolph High School, but it has beautiful sculptures of like yeah. of like mathematicians and you know philosophers mm-hmm. and these kind of gnome like faces, and those faces are all over the City College buildings. That's amazing. It's the same sculptor. So you had a good high school experience. I had an incredible high school experience. So I was sitting, there was this, basically this terrace, you know, like the top of the hill. And I was sitting, playing my soprano saxophone outside, you know, to relax before going to high school. (laughs) And um, Anthony Coleman heard me playing from the bottom of the hill because he was coming from Brooklyn from his house and he got out of the C train and he walks up the hill and he hears me playing uh, the soprano saxophone. So we became friends. I mean, knowing, I know Anthony pretty well. Did he I mean, go right up to you and say, you're playing Bechet? Yes. Yeah. He did. That sounds he, about right. He's, oh, hey, he said, yeah, you're playing Shag. That's cool, man. <laughs> I was like, yeah. You know, so we bonded right away, right away. And we were all through high school really close friends. Did you guys hit the rehearsal room together? Um, well, what happened was we were playing in the jazz band, and um, the first year there was this guy named Bernard Gluckman who was conducting the jazz band. <laughs> but the second year, Justin DiCiocio 
took over. I don't know if you know Justin. No. Well, Justin became one of the great uh, jazz educators. And but his first job was the high school of music and art. Yeah. So Anthony and I were in that band together. Oh my goodness. And Anthony was writing big band charts uh-huh. and bringing them in. And um, so he had a band, and I was a real beginner improviser, but he brought me into the band. And the whole thing was that we were doing um, jazz repertoire. Uh, you know, we were sort of ahead of our times. Like, like Cole Porter tunes? and I mean, we were doing actually like Jelly Roll Morton tunes. And, of course. Uh, Jelly Roll Morton to Thelonious Monk, Earl okay. Hines, okay. different things, and Coleman Originals. Right. And so we had these gigs like we would play at the WBAI Free Music Store. And um, we were doing, you know, these these uh, cool gigs. Yeah. And um, we did the All Night Soul, with, with uh, which was at the St. Peter's Jazz Church. You know, Anthony had this way of getting gigs. Well, I remember he told me this story that when he first, as a kid, he became so enamored by Jelly Roll that he pulled out the Yellow Pages and found everybody he could find who had played in Jelly Roll's bands and called them up to interview them. Yes, that was, I would love to hear those tapes. So would I. Because um, he, you know, uh, stupidly, I never heard them when I was a kid, but he said, oh yeah, you know, the trombonist Sandy Williams Mm -hmm. is working as an elevator operator on on 110th Street. So I went went to visit him. Um, and, and there were a lot of other people. Yeah. So through Anthony... I mean, he, I have to admit, so he was as encyclopedic back then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Holy shit, yeah. Yeah, that guy's I got mean, a catalog in his head. He, he has a photographic memory. He was spouting out dates of things in his life. He'd go like, August 6th, 1969, you know, like I did this and I did that. And then this, and then this girl, you know, and she really like was driving me crazy. So this part in my piece was like where my brain was melting, you know, and it it was so, you know, for me to grow up with a a composer, with a mind like that, that was like, that was worth an entire bachelor of music. Was he the first person who you ever played their original music and had access to the composer to... Because, you know, you grew up playing, you know, repertoire and stuff. Most of the music you're playing is by dead people who have been dead for right, right. a million years. Yeah, no, he was really the, you know, the first composer in my life. Yeah. And, I mean, he wrote a solo clarinet piece for me in which I performed and... um so, you know, at the same time, so uh, I had studied with this guy, Joel Press, mm. and oh, and one other thing, like Joel Press would say, like, things like, oh, um, if you didn't hear Charlie Parker live, you never heard, you never heard Bird at all. Like, he would just say stuff like that. In passing, or as like a profound statement? Well, you know, kind of a bit of both. Yeah. I mean, how, I mean, how did you take that? Oh, I was like totally impressed, like that he had actually heard Charlie Parker live, or yeah. he said, "Oh yeah, 1951, I was in the army, and then I went on leave in San Francisco, and I saw a double bill with Sidney Bechet and Miles Davis." Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, that's. I mean, just as a side note, just about two hours ago, mm-hmm. I was at Union Market doing mm-hmm. some grocery shopping. I was waiting at the deli counter, and they had Charlie Parker playing. It was, I was just kind of listening to the solo. It's still further out 
than what people do on the Alto Sex. Oh yeah, to this day. Oh yeah. I it, mean, as you know, I was hanging out with Ben Goldberg uh, a couple months ago. Yeah. And we were listening to some. Re- we were listening to this Miles Davis reissue, and he said it best. He goes, "You know, jazz music may have gotten smarter, but it don't swing like this." Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the I mean, the swing and the sound yeah. and the the expression. I mean, so what much he, color. What he was saying. Yeah. I mean, the depth of of you know, deep psychology and, yeah. and, and, and and raw emotion. And, you know, of course, pain and just intense. And, and he was brilliant. And, just, so, and, and that's a human doing that. Yeah. A person yeah. who devoted his life pretty singularly to the one thing. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. And um, so Joel Press said, if you didn't hear Bird live, you didn't hear Bird. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and he would talk about the different people he, he heard and and then so anthony uh so when i then uh then i switched teachers i actually switched to the guy who taught joel press oh really um leon rushnoff okay who was like one of the great you know master teachers this was you would have been what like 16 years old no no i was i was 13 13 and a half and i was um so it was at the end of ninth grade I was smoking a lot of weed. <laughs> I was like really, I was very unfocused. So I came yeah. into my lesson. But the thing was that my parents said, okay, we think you should go study now with the great teacher. And this is the teacher who taught Stanley Drucker in the New York Philharmonic, right. you know, the big symphony people. Right. So I thought to myself, um, okay, my love of music is about to be killed. And I was more into getting stoned and, you know, and playing for fun, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't really practicing very hard. Mm -hmm. Um, But they took me to see Rushnoff and play for Rushnoff. And so the first thing was we come to the building where Rushnoff teaches, 1595 Broadway, between 48th and 49th, Mm -hmm. which that's one of those... was one of those four-story theater district it's like right buildings. By the Brill building. Yeah, it's it's in the neck. The Brill building is the next block. Right. So this was you know one of those little buildings uh, since been torn down, but there are a few of them that are still left. And so the building is totally grimy <laughs> and seedy. Yeah. And this is not like nineteen, you know. Uh, like 1970 okay and I, and I go to the building and the, the like the elevator stops on the second floor the door opens the room is bathed in red light and there's a row of women in the shortest skirts you'd ever see because this is Times Square in 1970 yeah yeah so there was the quote-unquote massage parlor on the second oh, floor and you know so we go up and there's and the door opens and in I thought this very stiff man in a suit was going to come and say, you know, I am Leon Rushnoff. You will study clarinet with me and I will whip the shit out of you, you know. So instead of that, the door opens. This man comes to the door in ashbagash overalls, sneakers, messy hair, and he, and he has this great Brooklyn accent. He says to me, hey, come on in, son, you know. And I, it was like love at first sight. Yeah. Like the guy was so cool. And um, I played for him. And I, I remember I was just slopping through whatever I playing played. Playing scales, playing repertoire. I played the Schumann fantasy pieces. But, you know, just, yeah. I don't know, just 
you know, there's the middle section of that second piece, which is a little tricky and, right. you know, and um, I just... You yeah, didn't kill it. I wasn't killing it. <laughs> so he, but he, he looked at me, you know, and he said, oh, he said, you're a bit of an amateur son, but uh, I'll whip you in shape in no time. And it was so beautiful because he didn't, he didn't blow smoke up my ass. He didn't bullshit me, uh-huh. but he just said, hey, this is where you are, but I'm going to make you into a great player and i was so i was so you know energized and enthusiastic um yeah so that was that was really cool and then so you asked about my mother and jazz and everything so meanwhile you know i'd been going down this jazz path a little bit and listening to Bechet and this was before i got into music and art you know 13 and a half yeah. it was at the end or four almost 14 maybe i was 14 and a half, i think no, it's 14 and a half. 14 and a half, yeah. And then I was, so I was at the end of ninth grade, and ninth grade was, you know, went up in smoke pretty much. Um, <laughs> Literally. You know, exactly. <laughs> um, but then, um, you know, then, uh, you know, so I start studying with Rushnoff, but my, so I was starting jazz. I hadn't met Anthony yet. I hadn't really started to, you know, work on jazz and playing jazz but um my parents said well you know he plays saxophone and like we're worried about his embouchure and we're worried about you know when he's playing jazz and because my parents were you know um both very into classical music were they both you both of your parents were american yeah, 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 both were born in Brooklyn, actually okay. across the street from each other. Or like Bensonhurst yeah, or no, Flatbush? Uh, Flatbush, Flatbush. Cortellu Road and Ocean Park. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they said, they said you got to help our kid. He's listening to right, jazz. Right. He's- <laughs> so Leon, first of all, said, your son should do whatever his heart desires. He should play jazz. Uh, because it's a tough field out there and he should be absolutely as versatile as possible and it's not a problem. He'll play great classical clarinet and jazz and and whatever and improvising and do whatever mm-hmm. he wants to do. So to his credit, he was like my hero. Incredible. You know, and then uh, because later I found out not only had he taught all the all the symphony people but he taught so many of the studio players and jimmy hamilton was one of his students yeah in fact there was a program from 1942 that i saw where i think stanley drucker is playing like the brahms sonata and jimmy hamilton is playing like the poulenc sonata (laughs) you know yeah yeah. so a program so and and he was you know very proud of the fact that he taught both of those guys, Bob Wilbur took lessons with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rushnoff was a totally open guy. And um, certainly in the early 70s, late 60s, he was not untouched by the cultural revolution. Well, the that's not the right term. How do you but, mean? Well, you know, the, the, the hippie generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was not untouched by that. You know, he would have like wild parties uh-huh. in his house, you know. And he might have checked in with Timothy Leary, you're saying? I don't know if he checked in with... I don't think he was really uh, doing drugs or right. anything, but he was just like... His wife was a very famous psychologist. Okay. Um, he had an openness to him. Yeah, he had an incredible openness yeah. to him. And then he 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 pulled 
a power play on my parents that I, I still chuckle about. So he looks at my mother, you know, after this whole conversation about jazz and whatever, and he says to my mom, oh, you studied with Ivan Galamian. So do you know uh, uh, Ivan Galamian? I don't. Ivan Galamian was one of the great, great violin teachers. I mean, still at that time, he was the teacher at Juilliard. Okay, and, so of the 20th century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Galamian, you know, and like Perlman and Zuckerman and people like that had right. gone. And, and many, 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 many people. He was just like the great violin teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, so he goes, oh, yeah, um, you studied with Ivan Galamian. So my mother goes, oh, yeah, yes, I did. Very proudly. Yeah. yeah. And then he said, well, he's then with his great accent goes, well, you know, uh, Galamian is the Russian off of the fiddle. <laughs> so, <laughs> so good. It was so good. So good. And he took control. Yeah. Basically, like in the nicest, sweetest, funniest way, he said to my parents, I'm in charge now. Back off. It sounds like this beautiful balance of the openness that you just said, but like absolute decisiveness. Totally. Which is, this is what we're going to fix in your playing. Yeah. And back off because the jazz is important too. Yeah. It was unbelievable. And Rushnoff was basically, the thing which was great about him in a way was that he didn't, he wasn't a player. Uh, no. That, well, he had like a huge bout of nerves in the 40s, I think, oh. and then just like decided he was only going to teach. So there was a, he was never in competition with his students. And all he did all day long was teach. So people would come in, study, and he was like the car mechanic of clarinet he wasn't giving his opinion of how to play music or he wasn't laying any kind of a an aesthetic on anybody i mean even though i kind of wanted that a a, a little more from him but he was basically giving information like objective information and then he was also collecting information so he he was just like his students oh how do you finger that and then he would he would pass along fingering so my students today go like how do you know so many fingerings i was like man the fingering fingering doctors you, you know? never observed him play a horn a, a little bit yeah. but but very rarely how do you sound well he had a he had a kind of a classic sound you know yeah great he had studied with simeon bellison and daniel bonad so he had a bit of the russian school and the uh, french school yeah like yeah. Romantic and stern. <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. it's like when you when I hear a great classical player, when I hear like that pristine classical tone, which you know I gave up years ago ever <laughs> finding my way to it. But it, it sounds so beautiful, and it sounds like the thickness of their clarinets. It sounds like they're a foot thick. You know, I just I hear the wood. I yeah. hear it, and it's like there are a few things that just make me go oh like that. You know, it's so yeah. pleasing. Well, you know that was how I was trained, and and. Um, you know, and of course, I continue those activities to this day, playing like Brahms clarinet yeah. quintet with like the Tokyo and the Emerson quartets. Yeah. And, you know, but I don't do classical as much, um, although in my newest project with Kathy Tag, The piano. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The Breath and Hammer duo. Uh-huh. Um, we also do an acoustic program where we'll do like a Brahms Sonata and Debussy. Yeah. And then we'll go. so beautiful. Yeah. And then we'll go into some like freaky stuff and folk stuff with her playing inside the piano and 
playing prepared piano. And so it's uh, we do a real mix. We'll do an acoustic program uh, for like alternative chamber music pro uh you know series sure. and then uh, and then we also have a thing with the clarinet and piano and electronics are yeah. breath and hammer so wait, so how long were you with leon nine years so like age 13 to age 22 something like that yeah wow. yeah yeah because i i uh, was studied with leon through high school then through college i did my junior year in paris so i went to the paris conservatory and studied with the like maybe the worst teacher I ever studied really? with, uh, Delacluse. Well, um, let's talk about this. I'm so because I I think being a teacher, mm-hmm. true like yes there are objective standards of what makes a great teacher, but ultimately it's this sort of um, elusive thing. It's a it's a it's a it's a confluence of 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 factors and. It's specific to each, I think, relationship. Yes, know, with with the you know, with the right people, you know. Yeah, right, right. So to hear the story about this guy who who had this great balance of things that just worked for you to bring you to the level that you needed to get to, I'm curious what the other side of that looked like in France. Well, you know, um, well, I think what was great about Rushnoff was that he did look at every student like an individual, so that he. When you when you get together with other Russian, when I get together with other Russianov students, we compare notes, and the experience was was always positive, but really different, and and different. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, I can't I can't really think of specifics. But I think there's like a you know frequently, and maybe I'm maybe I'm wildly off base, but for a lot of kids who grow up following a classical trajectory, individualism isn't necessarily you know what's being focused on you know so i think to have a teacher who sees you as an individual and works with you specifically i think could probably save a lot of you know kids from going off into a dark place yes yes now he was he was a great he was a great teacher in that way yeah and super supportive and um a a real mensch like he just really cared about every one of his students as a human being and and you never ever felt like you were in a factory or anything. Yeah. Now, with Delacluse... <laughs> <laughs> now let's go to Paris. <laughs> well, Delacluse was... When I met him, I mean, he must have been in his mid-70s. Yeah. And, you know, he was the old-school French teacher. Now, you know, we could get into something... Um, a little, a little darker about him. Let's say he got his job at the Paris Conservatory, like in 1943, um, and maybe some shit went down. Is Messiaen somehow in this conversation? No, okay. no, no, no. But um, no, I mean, just that you know. He replaced some previous faculty. <laughs> I don't know. And, and I don't really know for sure. So I shouldn't be telling okay. tales out okay. of school. But basically, all I know is, you know, Delacluse one day, he looked at me and he said, you know, David, in French, uh, you know, Jews, they're very intelligent. And I said, thank you, maestro. You know, les Juifs, ils sont très intelligents. I said, merci, maître. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So he was like that. He was, uh, I, I say he was lightly anti-Semitic, légèrement anti-Semitique, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, uh, you but know. that's, you know, there, there, there's 
a talent to that. There's a little <laughs> whiff, French, a little whiff, a little whiff of yeah. that. But no, but the main thing about Delacluse was that, you know, so he was old school. We would there'd be six of us in the class. He would come in the room. We were sitting down at a table, a long table, and we stood up. And he would say, sit down, my children. That was the beginning of the class. That's a little eerie. Yeah, it was yeah. eerie. And then then basically he had a cookie-cutter method. You get up there and you play scales. He goes like, okay, like uh, E-flat minor in octaves. G-flat major in doubled thirds. And he had this system of... of uh, scales and mm-hmm. it was basically like the army it was like get down on the ground and give me 50 yeah. and that was how he taught um and i was used to rushing off where we just talked about things and and you know i worked my butt off i mean the first summer after i studied with Rushnoff for a year i had like all these little techniques and things and ways to practice scales and i i played scales for 4 hours a day yeah and then like another couple of hours on repertoire or it sounds like the difference is that Rushnov made you want to do that yeah. his teaching made you want to play and the, and the other guy you know you were playing in front of all your peers oh, so it was like, like a, a nightmare well it was kind of nightmarish i mean the only thing that i can say i did practice hard because i didn't want to be humiliated so there was a fear so there was a, a culture of fear fear and intimidation yeah intimidation. and yeah. uh was there a sense of um competition that he was sort of playing against one another well a little a little bit to his credit, he didn't really do that, you okay. know. Um, but what happened was, so there was no discussion of anything. But after the class, all of us would go to this bar and we would play pinball and drink beer <laughs> and then talk about clarinet for like two or three hours. Yeah. And we would just, like, you know, when he said that thing to you or you were missing that, here's a little exercise I could. So you guys were supportive of each other. Uh, we were. That's great. And I still um, am friendly with two or three of the people really? uh, who I went to school with. And they're they're there. out in the world playing. They're out in Fr- they're in France. Yeah. 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 Did you? Um, I don't want to go off, too off topic. I just read this book maybe two years ago. The 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 book about the quartet for the end of time. Yes. And the picture that's painted in that book of Henri Coca. Yes. Is this wild man mm-hmm. who? I mean, if you if you do if you search around for him, the only thing that you find is his performance of that piece in 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 the gulag, right? Or in the stalag, right? Um, and he's just he's been this figure in my mind. Of oh, like, yeah. who the hell was this guy? I want to hear more of his playing. I want to hear his playing. Yeah, I, don't, I haven't heard his playing. I haven't heard his playing um, either. And then I so when I was you know getting ready to you know this afternoon, I, I was listening to the piece that you did, right? And when did you first hear that piece, uh, The Quartet for the End of Time? I heard that piece actually probably that summer right after I had studied for the, my sophomore year in high school. Uh-huh. I went to uh, Bowdoin College, the summer program there, and it was um, the Aeolian Chamber Players had this summer program at Bowdoin that still exists. 
and um, it's not it's not run by the Aeolian chamber players anymore. But there is a violinist named Lewis Kaplan who uh-huh. teaches at Juilliard, and he had this on he had this group, and so they um, they uh, you know had had this summer program. So I went for the summer to study. And I remember the group playing the quartet for the end of time. And I remember it was in a church and I was up in a balcony, like looking down on the, on the group. And when that first movement started, I felt like I was just sucked into this. Were you aware Alternative of the universe. context of the composition and I think, the story? you know, Prisoner of War Camp. I basically okay. knew right. that. Okay. That was about it. But the sound? It was just that sound of like that Messian had created that incredible sound world. Yeah. And, and I just, um, yeah, I just like freaked out and fell in love with the piece. And I don't think I played it until about 10 years later. Um, I played it in the early 80s um, with a violinist named Paul Cantor and his wife, uh, Virginia Wextrom, on piano and a cellist named Roger Lowe, who was um, living in, who still is living in Florence, but he and I used to play chamber music all the time. He's like incredible Mm. um, master cellist. And he was principal cello of a of an orchestra that Zubin Mehta conducted in Florence for many years. And yeah. So, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the premiere of Quartet for the End of Time at Stalag Eight is like training monk at the five spot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's such, it's such a bizarre story. Yeah. And there's so much like um, mythology around it and, yes. and exaggeration. I'm assuming. Yes. And did you ever get to be around Messian or? Um, I, I saw a performance of the quartet for the end of time in the, now I'm, now I'm really losing it. Maybe the seventies. And there was a pianist who was a friend of my family's named Samuel Lipman and Stanley Drucker played clarinet. And I, Maybe it was Yehuda Hanani who played cello, mm-hmm. and I forget who the violinist was. It's it's like on the tip of my tongue, but sure. Um, and I think Messian attended that performance. It was at the Ninety Second Street Y. Yeah. But other than that, I never had any contact with Messian. Yeah. Unfortunately, but the cool thing was that after I put out this record and the whole Akoka project. Yeah, this is just like last year or something. Well, actually, it's quite a. It came out on Pentatone okay. very recently, but it's been out for a few years okay. now. Um, I got an email from Akoka's granddaughter Whoa. thanking me for um, thanking us for naming the project after her grandfather. Really? So I think she lives in London. Did you have much of an exchange with her? A, a little bit of an exchange. And then I was hoping she could come to a concert. And then she said, well, I'm actually in London. And so I thought she was living in Paris. I, I got mixed up. But yeah. anyway, that was really cool that, that I, I the, the Akoka family the touched The mystery of Akoka me. to me is it ignites this thing in my imagination that very few things do anymore. Well, you know, maybe you should try to get in touch with uh, Rebecca, who wrote yeah. that book. Yeah. I have her email. I'll give it to you. Yeah. But you could um, 
maybe she could put you in touch with the family. Yeah. And who knows? There might be some... There might be something there. There might be some recordings. You know? I would love to hear that. And, and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about you and your music. But there's, you know, the way that she... Uh, in, in the book, the way she sort of describes the way these guys came together. And, you know, Messian said, okay, you have a clarinet and you got a, a busted cello. I'll, yeah. I'll write something. It is just like... She does a really great job of painting the picture of what that perseverance looked like. That book is an incredible. Yeah. And and just, you know, and then Matt Heimovitz and I um, had the idea thinking about Akoka as a lone human being mm. um, caught in the conflagration of, you know, horrible world events, um, the prisoners of war released, but then they go, no, you're on a different train, so yeah. to speak. And then heading, and then him oh. just saying, I'm not going to end up there. I'll rather get shot. And him jumping oh, off the true. train. Yeah. You know, and with that, his horn. With his horn, you know, <laughs> breaking his other arm. That image to me of him and his horn jumping off the train oh, yeah. is like, that's my guy. That's, I've never heard him play, but I know he's my guy. Absolutely. I mean, that's the quintessential idea of freedom yeah it's like oh, i'm not gonna go to a concentration camp you know i'd rather just get a bullet in the back of my head right now yeah you know <sighs> so it's it's an amazing amazing story and um so we just thought about this lone person trapped in the middle of that and so the whole idea of the end of time and then so i had the piece at the beginning with the glissandi yeah. and, and then the glitchy computer stuff yeah and yeah and, and then the computer stuff at the end with my pal so-called yeah whom you know and uh taking the last chords of the violin piece and then um that was actually my suggestion. I said, you know, the dun 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 dun, then do a heartbeat, and then oh, it's insane. And then he went on, you know. Then he went on, you know, and took the clocks and the alarm clocks, and it's a brilliant yeah. piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's taken a lot of flack for it, unfortunately, because I just think who has so called because you know a lot of people, you know, they'll review it and they, you know, they're very classical, and I mean, they don't see that that piece actually portrays the nightmare yeah. of the the whole nightmare of the whole thing and he has the, the footage the newsreels of Europe falling and it just feels so current right now yeah and i mean let's you know let's let's be realistic like clearly the people involved in the making of the music have context for it and have musical depth there's plenty of great recordings of it being played faithfully. I don't know that I need another one. I, I'm personally more curious to hear something that's a bit more interpretive uh, in the right hands. Right. Well, this is the thing. You know, the the actual Messian Quartet for the End of Time, we play it absolutely, you know. Note to note. Faithfully. Yeah. Um, one thing we experimented with, but we weren't, we, 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 didn't quite pull it off was to try to create a different room for each um for each, for each movement? movement so sonically sonically close mic versus far away versus yeah and I, I i just we we weren't quite able to uh to technically achieve that but we were doing it sometimes in performance and we may still you know if we are able to continue the project because i had this thought that you know like the sixth movement where time is ending it's the yeah. end of time yeah. that should be 
almost unbearably loud, you know. And and then, you know, the, 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 the beginning with the, uh, you know, the three or four in the morning with the birds. Yeah. You know, that's very intimate and very weird and very foggy and smoky. Yeah. And so... Uh, this to me is one of the most exciting aspects of making music, is thinking about this uh, third dimension of music which is you know the composition the performance but now let's what are we going to make this sound like yeah what's the what, what is the sonic story of this piece right right that to me is is perhaps the most exciting part right but the thing is so that's still still a little maybe i'm not sure if we quite achieved that but it was still always our 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 thought to uh, frame the piece with my piece and so-called's piece at the end, because normally, the way I've always done it, you know, you they'll play, you know, someone will they'll have like a Mozart serenade with strings uh-huh. or a Beethoven trio intermission messian quartet for the end of time, and that to me just seems like, um, I mean, it's fine for a standard chamber music concert, but it seems like a shame because the piece is so powerful and so evocative that having that frame around it felt like a good solution for us. Yeah. Makes me think of that, uh, the poetry after Auschwitz quote. What was that? Was it Adorno talking about aesthetics? Said there, there is no poetry after Auschwitz, or there shouldn't be. Uh, yeah, it seems, yeah, that's a piece I think, you know, kind of deserves its own. Its own platform, its own stage, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, And anything around it should have to do with it directly. And we did actually, in one performance, we got this very clever... We tried to get lighting designers, and we yeah. weren't really that successful, but um, one time at Duke University, we got this amazing kid who just kind of got it and did a lighting design for each movement. So each movement was lit really differently and that was quite interesting so um i'm i'm curious to or i'm excited to try to continue on with this yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. so going back to paris and your time at the conservatory there uh were you kind of anxious to get out of there yes so (laughs) what did did you see as like the the long-term goal for yourself you want to go be a symphony player at that point I, I didn't really know. Um, you know, I had, I had played, um, you know, with Anthony and I was working on jazz, but something I was shying away from like super traditional jazz, you know, like, you know, being the, the badass who plays mm-hmm. every fucking chord change, <laughs> you know, and cause I felt, uh, for me, um, well, it was a combination of things. First of all, I had a crisis of confidence because I felt like, oh, I'm, I'm, I, I didn't feel like I could find something original. I thought, oh, I'll just be a good Buddy DeFranco imitator. So I didn't. I, I was feeling stuck, like where to go mm-hmm. with jazz, and I, I, I couldn't see my. You know, I, I went to the Art Ensemble of Chicago. Oh God! The, I hear them play. Yeah, and then I In was. Paris. No, no, in in New York okay. or, you know, and, and I was thinking, oh, I don't know whether I can actually, you know, like, where does jazz go after this? I mean, Roscoe Mitchell is on the highest level yeah. of just absolute insane mastery. Right. But, you know, the thing was, I didn't really know. I was having trouble finding my place. Yeah. So, uh, 
I go to college. Was there? I I want I want to just ask a little bit about this. Was there a divide? Did you feel like there were things that you wanted to do, but your world was too far away from them, or was it just completely like staring out into the open, not knowing? It was a little mixture of both. I mean, so you know, I I, I when I was living in Paris. Um, did a little side trip to London and I went to Dobell's record shop, which was the big jazz record shop. And I bought um, Duke Ellington's Live in Fargo, 1940. Okay. That I don't know that record. is an amazing, amazing record. And basically it's a dance date, 1940, you know, yeah. Barney Begard, Ben Webster, Rex Stewart, Tricky Sam Nanton, Jimmy Blanton, you know. Uh-huh, the Cats. Johnny Hodges. The Cats. The Cats. <laughs> yeah. That band. And um, I think it was Ray Nance's first gig, and he was just basically like reading the charts. Uh-huh. And um, these two well-known jazz guys, I think it was um, Jack Tower and... One of those other guys, they had like set up a recording uh, device mm-hmm. and they were right next to Jimmy Blanton. So you really hear the bass. Yeah. And it was, um, and so that that's the live in Fargo. And I heard that and I said, this, because I was having this whole crisis of confidence with jazz and I didn't know what I w- was doing. And I'd kind of abandoned jazz out of fear of not being able to find my own voice and being a little disillusioned with, you know, just like playing. There were so many players who were like post Coltrane playing like, yeah. you know, a lot of notes for the sake of it. And I, I, I just didn't see myself finding my place or finding any expression in that right. for my for myself personally and so i um i had kind of quit jazz but then when i heard that um that live in fargo i was like this is the great american symphony duke ellington is the great american composer um like i was thinking you know Okay, Copeland, eh, I, I never really connected with Copeland. Didn't stir anything. Yeah. Yeah. And whereas I said, here's Duke Ellington taking the whole African-American tradition, the whole spectrum of America, everybody out on the dance floor, people are out there to drink, to uh, get laid, you yeah. know. It's like the whole... It's an immersive environment, yeah, shall it's we that, say. the whole immersive environment. Yeah. And he's out there, and people are playing. The music is functional. It's deep. It's smart. It's... He's charismatic. Yeah. And then, you know, you when you hear, like, the, the they do this version of the mooch, which is just, like, insane... And then um, a version of Coco, which is actually a lot slower than the studio uh, version. So it's just really dark and like intense. And uh-huh. um, So I was thinking, this is the great American music. And the great American music is not divorced from a, ver- a vernacular. It's completely symbiotically intertwined with a living vernacular 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that was like, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I need to come back to America. This was sort of like a, a life vest being thrown out to you in the yeah. sinking water. Well, I, I mean, I was there in Paris and I, I really, you know, I just wasn't feeling it like coming back and studying with this teacher. Well, you know, but that's the thing about being a kid and, you know, if there's yeah. anything good about getting older is that you begin to say, oh, my feelers are right. I'm going to trust them. But if you're a kid and you're not feeling it, but you don't have a point of reference, right. you say, oh, it's just me, I guess. Well, I, 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 I had a sort of a point of reference. I mean, of my aesthetics in a way but you know then I, I i went back to america and i um got a master's at juilliard eventually I finished out college i was at sarah lawrence yeah. college and then i finished out um i got a master's and then i did 10 years of freelancing and so really basically i had abandoned jazz and improvised music to earn a living. Uh, yeah, I was earning a living, yeah. and I was playing like in different ballet orchestras, and then you know, I'd gone to the Marlboro Music Festival, so I was like sitting and hanging out with Rudolf Serkin and people like that, and um, the great French flute player Marcel Moyes was conducting mm. our wind groups, and and he was a character and a half. And so this right now we're talking about the late seventies, yeah, early seventy-eight, yeah, yeah, seventy-eight, and. Uh, graduated from Juilliard in 80, and then, mm -hmm. you know, I had a woodwind quintet. We won the Naumburg Chamber Music Award. So I was doing like this... Were you content with everything that was happening? I was, but then when I was in my early 30s, I felt like, wow, I threw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, like, Something was missing. Uh, yeah, I wasn't improvising. I, w I didn't feel creative. And Had you stayed in touch with Anthony? Yeah. yeah, we stayed in touch, and he would have these various projects, um, and he'd invite me to play. So we did, he had this band um, called Manaki, and we played at uh, CBGB's, oh, you know, geez. the old CBGB's. Yeah, yeah, Valerie, and yeah. I remember the, it was so loud that at one point I just rammed my bell into the microphone it just played and played noise. the highest <laughs> note that I could and um and and you know but it was it was really intense and the drummer from television was uh, oh shit billy um I forget his last okay. name but anyway he was he was the drummer in that band so anthony was already sort of mining this this cross yeah, cultural thing, and the whole you know, punk thing, high, and, low, yeah. classical yeah. noise. Yeah, right. And then I remember Anthony did had this uh, big gig at uh, the kitchen. Yeah, and oh, let me see. I think the clarinet section was me and Don Byron and Marty Ehrlich. Oh God, you could do a lot worse than that. <laughs> so the three of us were together, and then there were some other instrumentalists. Um, and including Guy Klosevic on accordion. So we were doing our sound check, and Guy said, oh, I have to be late. I have this little gig I have to play, and I'm going to be late for the sound check. So this was like 1987. Okay. So he comes to the sound check, and he goes, oh, yeah, played at this... Uh, club the little club on houston street <laughs> called the knitting factory East Houston. Street. yeah and he said and he said that it, i think it could be a good venue for like a new music or ex, you know experimental music 
Yeah. You know, and that was like the first time I'd heard about the knitting factory. Yeah. I mean, 87, it, it would have just gotten started. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was like he was probably maybe playing one of the first gigs there ever. Yeah. Wayne is the guy that, Wayne Horvitz is the guy that sort of brought all the musicians over. Right. Yeah. Right. So that was, you know, what was happening. But but again, I was in this time through the 80s, freelancing, doing an occasional thing here or there. Um, and then what happened was, so, but I was in this time in my life, um, it was kind of a crazy time, like emotionally for me too. I was getting a divorce. Oh, there was like a lot of stuff. So there was a lot of upheaval and I was in the middle of a lot of changes. And then I was, at the time I was living on 80th and Broadway right across from Zabar's. And I would hear suddenly wafting up to my window. I was on the 10th floor, and I heard klezmer music. From Zabar's? In front of Zabar's. There were like buskers in front of Zabar's. Buskers who were like, let's go to where the Jews are? Well, they were Jewish, so okay. they were, you know, there was, they had a klezmer band, you know. So there were, they were playing klezmer, and I was like, oh, yeah. Because, um, like, a couple of years before that, um, Hank Isnetsky had contacted me, maybe around 85. When Hank is one of the great scholars of this music. Yeah. Yeah. And he had that band, you know, he still has that band, the Klezmer Conservatory Band. Mm-hmm. And um, Don Byron was in that band. Don was leaving. And so they were looking for a replacement. And he, he I remember, he put, like, a cassette tape in a regular envelope you know and he sent it to me and he and this was some traditional klezmer and he said you know learn these two and then i thought to myself ah nah i don't want to play klezmer i don't i don't think so but then a couple of years later oh and then i had also in 19 either 79 or 80 i heard dave taris play just a few steps from here Okay. Um, over like on Pitt Street, Pitt and Grand. It's right over here. Yeah, exactly. At the Abrams Art Center. No, it wasn't there. Right. It was at some like rec room in one of the buildings. One of these buildings, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But you, you heard him in person. I heard him in person. Dave Terrace. Dave Terrace. Like one of the big two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he was playing with a guy named um, Sam Beckerman on accordion and Irving Gratz. So it was like these three Alta Cockers, like playing away. And the thing was that, you know, Taris didn't play all that well anymore. Like at age 80 or something. Yeah. Like, what do you want? Yeah. Yeah. But when he played the first note he played, I got goosebumps, like that sound. Um, so I, I heard Klezmer, you know, then in the early 80s. That was probably the first time I heard Klezmer. I heard Giora Feidman play in New York, uh-huh. also in maybe late 70s, early 80s. And I had a, I had a little, how can I say, a frisson about it. Uh-huh. Like it, it kind of activated my... Um, I mean, th- I, I, you know, I'm, I'm younger than you. The word klezmer was not a word I knew growing up. Oh, neither did I. And I didn't know. Uh, I you know I, I I could hear it and it felt familiar to me. It felt um, it sounded like the mothballs smelt. 
right. in my grandmother's house. Exactly. It was very familiar. Yes. It wasn't uh, very attractive. It felt like the parts of Judaism that culturally we tried to divorce ourselves from. You know, the way garlic smells, the way herring tastes. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I, I had a little bit different reaction to it because to me, I grew up like, how can I explain this? My grandparents, when they came, or my, you know, my great-grandparents, when they came from Eastern Europe... From Poland, presumably? Pro- Poland, Belarus, um, you know... Yeah. But your name Lithuania. Like, yeah. On, on the sleeve. <laughs> right. Well, my, my, my great-grandfather, Krakauer, yeah. Philip Krakauer, came uh, actually from the north of Krakow's in the south yeah. of Poland. And um, he came from Bielsk Podlowski, uh-huh. which is in the north. But, um, you know, presumably in the mid-19th century, when Jews were getting names, uh, they said, oh, those people, they came from Krakow. Right. So usually the rule of thumb is if you're a Warszawa or a Krakower or a Lublin, you came from, you, you were yeah, living yeah. somewhere else, but it was your ancestors. Um, but in any case, so m- my great-grandparents and grandparents came at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, and I think they wanted to um, divorce themselves from the culture, yeah. yeah, and assimilate. And there were there was so much pain and suffering around the experience in Eastern Europe that it was very. I think I think they felt like they just wanted to wash their hands of it. And so, you know, my grandfather, you know, who was born in Lvov, um, you know, he was like the opera fan, you know, and and I was it would I found found it stultifying, like their world, you know, like a little bit pretentious, like sure. go to the opera or this oh, yeah, or that, yeah, yeah. or then, you know, hanging out with my father's parents. They're trying to get into the club. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, and then hanging out a little bit with my father's parents, like they were a little distant and I didn't really get to know them that well. And so, like their world, you know, didn't feel that accessible to me, like emotionally. And suddenly when I heard klezmer music, sounded a little bit like my grandmother's Yiddish accent. Yep. And suddenly I said, this is the funky side of us. Yes. And that, so that instead of going, oh, this is the yucky side, I thought, oh, we do have some funk. Oh, because, yeah. Because I always felt like growing up, you know, like in the in the early 70s, like, well, funk was James Brown and right. funk was, and, and listening to jazz and listening to African-American culture felt like funky and earthy and alive and vibrant. Uh-huh. And you know, and ju- there's pain. Yeah, and, and you hear pain and, in the music, you right. know, and I, that's so crucial to me. Yeah, and it's just let me like sidetrack for one second. For me, as a listener, as and as a musician, and as a Jew, and all these different things, there are like I I hear with the radical Jewish culture thing where I kind of lost interest was where the pain and the suffering and the fucked up in this like kind of stopped being like a central part of it, you mm-hmm. know. Like when it kind of took on this place where people were like, Anthony describes it as like, it, I'm talking specifically about John's label and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. that umbrella. Right. 
when it kind of became like a blue note thing with an identifiable sound is when I lost interest because to me what was so alluring about it, what was so uh, like inviting and, and intoxicating and, and troublesome was this funkiness, this this uneasiness, and you hear all these things happening at one time. It could be you playing the shit out of the clarinet next to you know something like self-haters, and it's like this is the richness of experience that I'm attracted to. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that was always the thing that suddenly I heard, oh, yeah, when you hear Brandwine and Taris, you know, you hear, you hear the, you know, the, the, incredible expression of emotion and 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 yeah and pain and 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 by all objective standards they were motherfuckers on their instrument absolutely they were just as burning as any bebop player yeah totally 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 so that so suddenly uh so you know i had these little things in the Late seventies, early eighties, touching bass slightly with Klezmer, mm-hmm. little an invitation from Hank Isnetsky. Oh, I played in the late seventies this thing Yiddish opera at the Y, the ninety second yeah, yeah, Street yeah. Y. So there's this composer David Schiff, who wrote this uh, half in Yiddish, half in English opera, Gimple the Fool, based on the Isaac Bashev singer's story. Yeah, and it had an amazing clarinet part and i got into that and again that was resonating those little jewish genes of mine um and then plus my teacher you know who i mentioned rushnov who studied with simeon bellison mm-hmm. um so that's another story Be- simeon bellison came to the united states with an ensemble called zimro and zimro was from St. Petersburg, and it was a Jewish music ensemble, but playing this music that was trying to create a Jewish nationalism, like Liszt can cre- creating, Hunga- you know, Hungarian nationalism, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and, and so on and so forth. And Bartok later, with, with his kind of... But Bartok was a little post-nationalist, mm-hmm. but, but this kind of late 19th century aesthetic about these, you know... This nationalism. So Jews, these Jewish composers writing these pieces, and Zimro was um, touring all over. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, they were trying to get to Palestine eventually. I mean, this is 1919, so it's like right. the Russian Revolution is raging. They're like, yeah, and things were not good over there in the motherland. Mm-hmm. But they played a huge concert in Carnegie Hall, sold out concert in the big hall. Yeah. Uh, and um, and then so then suddenly, I think they ran out of money, so they got stranded in New York. So here's Simeon Bellison, 1919. He becomes the principal clarinetist of the New York Philharmonic in 1920, and stays there till 1946. And he's writing little pieces, little Judaic pieces, and he gives them to Rushnoff, and Rushnoff gave them to me. Jesus Christ. So suddenly, I'm getting these little sort of through the 80s, I'm getting these little indicators that are pointing me towards Klezmer, 
Um, plus Anthony and I, as kids, there was a Yiddish comedy record called Joe and Paul with the Barton brothers. And we used to listen to that together and just laugh our asses off. Because, you know, and Joe and Paul, a fargenigen, Joe and Paul, kind of bargain, Craig in the suit. I mean, were you, were your you know? parents going to the Catskills? Like, did you no, have... No, no, no. So you didn't know Duvid Crockett and no, uh, no. King of Delancey Street? No, no. I, I, I grew up totally with like a class mostly yeah. classical music and broadway shows which again you know like it or not those broadway shows those are all jews yeah of course of course it's so fun you know there's so many books on it it's not you know but you know the w- there's what the hell was how the jews invented hollywood i think was the name of the book you know where if you look at classic golden era hollywood just all of these great films, Gone with the Wind, you know, you pick one. You could tell Jews are writing this because they're basically transcribing their experiences from the pogrom right onto the page. Right, You know, right. the burning cities and the – it's been crept in the mm-hmm. entire time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Sidney Bechet to me is the guy that's like kind of like uh, like Robert Johnson or something, this almost like mythical figure who, you know – had these meetings that we'll never really know about, but there, there's something there. He played Klezmer, I heard. N- uh, I'm no. off base. I think you're off base. I'm off base. But, you know, of course I did this whole Klezmer tribute to Sidney Bechet. Right. Which was based on reading a biography of Bechet's where... Um, he encountered Jews. Well, of course he encountered <laughs> Jews. He had to have encountered Jews. Yeah. You know... Um, I mean, the the owner of the Apollo was uh, was Jewish. I mean, right? But I mean, Jewish musicians. I heard he at some point he encountered Jewish musicians in New Orleans. Oh no! Well, there is there is the, his piece, the Egyptian fantasy. Yeah, which is a Turkisher. Right. You know, bum 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 bum. So. The, but then I was reading somewhere in one of the liner notes, you know, those uh, Masters of Jazz, that actually it was based on a published piece by a guy named like Abe Schmachenach or whatever. <laughs> so so he basically stole a Jewish piece okay. and yeah. called it because Bechet had a Mozartian ear. He would hear something and he'd pick it up and I then just... he probably for, even forgot that right. somebody else had written it. Um, but going back to the late 80s, so you're in New York, these fragments of, of Jewish music are sort of finding their way to you, to the tape that Hank has sent you, to hearing Dave Terrace on Grand Street. Yeah, and playing, and playing, that, uh, playing that opera. Were you doing wedding gigs doing the... No, 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 okay. no, not at all. Yeah. I was, I, no, I, yeah, I... I you I, didn't have to do wedding gigs? No, no, I, no, I just was, wasn't like... You know, I I didn't really have all those standards under sure, my, you know. Sure. I mean, really playing a wedding gig and being a, an expert a real skill. club date musician, yeah, it wasn't a skill set I yeah. developed. But um, so then, you know, so rewind, uh, fast forward rather to uh, 1987, and then there I am, kind of a little bit lost, you know, on the... Divorce hadn't really happened, but I was like on the verge of it happening. That's brutal. Yeah, yeah. That'll yeah put you down. Yeah, and I was just unhappy. Like I was like, yeah, I'm doing this freelancing, but like I'm at the beck and call of all of these contractors, and it's really bumming me out. And so I was, I was kind of at this crossroads, and I was like, 
you know, and I was doing the odd gig with Anthony, but I was like, what? I still couldn't find my place and where, what I really wanted to do. And I wasn't, I wasn't able to sort of make the leap like into the avant, you know, totally into the avant-garde. I, I just couldn't, couldn't find my place. And suddenly I hear these klezmer, you know, so I, I go downstairs and I see there's this... Across, at Zabar's. At yeah. Zabar's and there's this woman playing accordion and this dude playing clarinet. So, um, so then like a few weeks later, I'm rehearsing with this woodwind quintet and the wife of the bassoon player is a pianist and she's about to give a piano lesson so we're packing up and this woman walks in for her piano lesson i go hey you're the accordion player in that klezmer band in front of zabar's so we have a little chat you know and then like maybe a month later i'm on the the bus on broadway the 104 bus uh-huh. bus is packed it's a hot summer day and suddenly that woman gets on, the accordion player. And I say, hey, remember we met, you know, over. And, and, and then she says to me, you know, we're looking for a clarinet player for our klezmer band. Now, what happened was, I think she thought I'm an established classical player. I would have a student or a friend, right. you know, I could recommend and it was like I suddenly, like, time stood still, and the words came out of my mouth, I'd like to try. And I'll never forget that moment. It was just my fate was, you know, my yeah. life changed. Yeah. And then they said, oh, oh, okay, cool. Here's the number of the woman, and I called the leader, and who's now a cantor in Brooklyn. Yeah. And I, I called her up. Janet Leuchter is her name. And uh, Vicky Gould is the accordion player. And this woman named Laura Lieben was playing a uh-huh. sort of percussion and some other instruments. And um, so Janet said, oh, well, here's some, here's some sheet music. Learn these pieces and come audition for us. These were just like heads, basically? Yeah, heads. Yeah. Uh, but they're... You know, Klezmer is not really improvising so much in the pure form. Mm-hmm. It's more about ornamentation. Mm-hmm. And that was actually what Janet said to me. She said, you know, it's more like Baroque music. It's more like having a a, a melody that you ornament. Mm-hmm. And so I came and auditioned and, you know, guess I did pretty well. And You, and, you had this concept already of the ornamentation? I, I I tried, you know, I know that took a long, long, long time to get into that. I have taken three clarinet lessons in my life. I'll never forget the first lesson. I was told very clearly, don't play with vibrato. You're using a lot of vibrato. Vibrato is not something you do on the clarinet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you know that David Pino book, Clarinet, the clarinet? No. It's a wonderful book. Okay. Uh, it's like he just runs it down in very plain English, every aspect of the clarinet. Oh, okay, I'll check and, it out. And there he says, you know, don't play with vibrato. Okay, vibrato's not the clarinet's right. Now, in Klesmer music, especially your brand of it, like there is this beautifully controlled vibrato that is so expressive. It's pure storytelling with the horn. Was that 
am, am I projecting or did you have to kind of like get used to playing that way? Well, here, here's the thing, you know. Sorry um, if you're not a clarinet dork, anyone who's listening to this. No, no, but I think this, this applies to any, maybe it applies to anyone doing anything. You know, you get into a mindset of doing something, you know, and I was, I was super into classical music yeah. and getting that tone. That rich tone, yeah. I mean, I think I played with a little vibrato, but a tiny little shimmer. Because uh-huh. um, I even I go back and listen to recordings that I made in the mid '80s, even before I played klezmer. I, I I would put in a little shimmer into the into the uh, sound, mm-hmm. which was already a bit controversial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember driving once. Recently, more not recently, maybe ten years ago, but it was it was long after I'd made these classical recordings, and and then it, suddenly this recording comes on of this Beethoven piece with wind, piano and winds, and I'm listening and I'm going like, yeah, I kind of dig what that clarinet player's doing, and then it was like, now you have heard the New York Philomusica, and I was like, oh fuck, that was my recording. <laughs> Ah, you know. it's so good. So, you know, yeah. I recognize, I was like, yeah, that's that's a nice direction, you know? Well, I mean, you know, I, I listen to, um, you know, I'm familiar with your, your your own music, your own output. And I listened to the Gollyhoff piece. Yeah. Uh, Osvaldo Gollyhoff. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I wonder, I wonder what the crack man sounds like when he's classical. And I was like, oh, it's the crack man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's, a, you know, that piece is, is totally, like, influenced by yeah. Klezmer. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. and, you know, so. Oh, but interestingly, um, this was a big thing when I recorded the Golihov, um, was that, you know, I came and I thought, well, it's, 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 it's a, it's influenced by Klezmer, but it's a classical piece. So I'll use my classical mouthpiece because these days, if I play Brahms or Mozart clarinet concerto or whatever, I use a classical mouthpiece because it's too insane. Yeah. Like it needs to feel different for yeah, me. Yeah. 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 Other, you know, it's like there's a clarinet and then there's an improvised music clarinet. Mm-hmm. So there's a classical, so I have a classical mouthpiece. So I was playing the classical mouthpiece and we did a test take and I listened to it. I was like, nah, it's not, it's not the shit. So I put my, so luckily it was just the test take and I put my klezmer mouthpiece on and suddenly the whole Kronos quartet turned to me and said, what the fuck just happened? That's the one. And they were like, that's it. You know? And I was like, yes, that's, that's it. Yeah. Cause it, it has to have that sound. So as you said, it's the crack man. So, and it's that grit with that funk we were talking about. The grit and that that funk. Yeah. You know, this way when you listen to, you know, James Brown and musicians are playing behind the beat, ahead of the beat. It's the give and take. And that's, it's the thing. Yeah. 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 So, um, I I think I lost my train of thought but, though. So the the you you this woman said, "Hey, you know, do you have someone you could recommend?" He said, "I'll do it." Right. And yeah, oh, but then there's like that thing about so you asked me about the ornamentation. Yeah. So you know, that took a that took a while to get and at first uh you know, I I think I was playing quite Oh, so you were saying? I know what what it was. You were saying the that geeky thing. So if you get into you know the, the, the vibrato, no, but you said pardon, pardon, yeah, yeah, yeah. pardon us for being clarinet geeks here. But the thing is, is that I think this applies to any human being who does anything. You get into a mindset. So 
despite the fact that I had played jazz, that I knew how to improvise, that right. I knew how to swing, right. that I knew about inflection, when I was playing klezmer at first, maybe for the first two or three years, it was almost as if I was playing a classical concerto and I was reading the notes. Yeah. And I and I I had to it was like breaking myself of yeah. that to get into a mindset of really improvising. So that to really get the sound and the freedom took me a while because Despite the fact that I, I, you know, I could play free, that I could improvise, that all the stuff, that I, I had all those skill sets, you know, when I'm playing those, the klezmer tune and playing by memory, <laughs> playing by heart, you know, then it was like very, there was a self-consciousness that I had to get over, and I finally did. Self-consciousness is the enemy of of exceptional performances. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I was holding my own, but it was still something that I was very aware of that I had a classical brain yeah. and a klezmer brain. Now, it's almost the opposite. When I go back to classical, it's like like my persona is so, like, kind of unleashed. Right. But then to bring it in... Uh, to cl so it's it's an interesting balancing act. Yeah. Like uh, recently, uh, a couple of times, I was playing as a soloist with orchestra, playing a Mozart concerto in the first half, and then a klezmer set in the second half. And that was super challenging. That is super challenging, to go back and forth between the two genres in one, one performance, in one concert. But interesting, because then people go like, wow... The Mozart Concerto, it sounds so fresh the way you play it. So I feel really good about that, that finally, maybe, and you also talked about my teacher, uh, about Rushnoff encouraging individualism, but that there is so much emphasis in teaching on uniformity. This is a classical sound, no vibrato, this is it, these are the parameters, so that 98% of classical players sound Pretty damn similar. Pretty interchangeable. Yeah. I mean, today also 90% or 98% of, of classical violinists sound interchangeable. Whereas, you know, you'll hear a recording of uh, Heifetz, Misha Elman, mm -hmm. uh, Joseph Tsigeti, um, Fritz Chrysler, and they... You know Heifetz when you hear Heifetz. You know Heifetz when you hear Heifetz. Yeah. You know Chrysler when you hear Chrysler. Those sounds are unmistakably... Uh, I mean, look, you, you, probably 90%... I, you know, maybe this people are going to kill me, but 90% of the jazz players you hear... Uh, you know, in a in a certain, you know, let's say very traditional setting... Oh yeah, they sound like a post Coltrane. It usually, to my ear, sounds like, oh, for this number he's doing is Paul Desmond. For this number he's doing, you know, like it's kind of, it's very codified, shall we say? It's codified, and when you hear Coleman Hawkins, he sounds like Coleman Hawkins and everything he plays. Nobody can sound like that. It's so funny. Or Lester Young. I mean, even Paul well, Kinnishe. Better than Lester Young. Right. My favorite clarinetist of all time. <laughs> yes, yes. So that's a whole other that's thing. That's a trip right there. That's a whole other thing. But 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 talking about like 
these giants, you know, Charlie Parker, as we were talking about before. So that thing about finding that sound was, that's why I quit playing jazz, because I was scared I couldn't find my own sound. And so I'm, I'm, you know, if I could say, you know, I come away with one great success in my life, is that I found a sound that is mine. Yeah. And and that that makes me really happy, uh, you know, just as a, a personal uh, a personal success. I mean, you hear Bechet. Although I gotta well, say, I heard this like Bechet tribute record by a, a French guy. You know, re- made recently, the last couple of years. And that guy copied Bechet like so perfectly. I was <laughs> like, holy shit! You almost want to applaud it and say, like, hey, you you did it. <laughs> I was like, but you know, that was just like kind of terrifying yeah. but but basically uh you know i'm sure there's somebody who can who can copy Colm hawkins exactly sure. but 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 those players created a a template a, a, they created a sound that was uniquely their own and and that's what i always strived for and so it, to me also i feel like in this age of uniformity, if I could deliver a classical performance that has something within the strictures, within those boundaries, if I could deliver something that sounds um, like me, then, you know, but that took me. That's a life's know, work. That took 40 years. That's a life's work. You yeah. Know, let's, let's, let's be honest about it. It's like. You know, I, I have a friend who's a rather exceptional musician, my buddy Peter. He's a trumpet player, mm-hmm. Peter Evans. Yeah. Who straddles the world of classical and jazz in a way, contemporary music that people his age, you know, don't normally do. He's right. just an exceptional guy. But when you kind of, how can I say it? Like, it's crazy to see that in him because he's been doing that since he was in his 20s, right. you know? It's a life's work. It's a life's work to yeah. be able to scale those heights with that panache, you know? And, and, and you know, I don't want to hear some punk, you know, approach a, a great piece of music, you know, without having scaled those heights for 40 years. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, so so that that has been, you know, the my journey, yeah. you know, over a long, long, long time. Um, so, but one thing I'm curious about with, with the Jewish music specifically and i'm not asking about identifying culturally through the music or mm-hmm. but i feel like for people like us who look at music as a continuum who look at the work that the people before us have done with respect the way you just described i'm finding a voice i'm 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 figuring out my place in this continuum i i, I feel like a lot of your work especially from the last 20 years you've been doing that with music but also in 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 Jewish culture, mm-hmm. you've been finding a place and, and, and participating in Jewish culture in a way that, that, that is in service of a continuum. Mm-hmm. Culturally, you've been involved quite actively. Yeah. How, how much do you feel, is there a similarity between your involvement with Jewish culture and your involvement with musical culture? Not in, in a direct way, the way they talk to each other, but carrying the conversation forward. Yeah, I mean I I think it's a it, I it's a tricky question. It's a tricky question. Let's put it this way. You know, again, growing up in the 70s, 
assimilated family. I had a bar mitzvah to please my grandparents, basically. My parents said, you should do this because you'll please your grandparents. My grandparents were all basically atheists. So I don't really know exactly why I was pleased. Maybe deep down my parents couldn't see me going through somehow some deep-seated belief in them. I mean, they are total assimilated atheists also. Um, But I I felt like I that I was very bland growing up. Like we talked about the funkiness Mm. in African-American music. Um, You know, I went to all the public elementary school, junior high school, high school, um, and, you know, was around black kids all the time and Latino kids and and then in, in uh, high school of music and art, kids from like all kinds of different ethnicities all over New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I felt that, but I, I felt, you know, that I was like this, yeah, this bland American kid with like no real culture or personality, you know, that, that it, I, I felt very, yeah, like I was boring, my, that my whole life was boring. And so, you know, when I started getting into jazz when I was 13, and of course I started, you know, 11 and then, you know, 12 and 13 and 14 and reading every book, you know, uh, Bob Reisner, Ch- Charlie Parker book and the, the Mingus's autobiography yeah. And, yeah, and, a- and Bechet's autobiography and reading, just getting, reading... We're good. Uh, yeah. yeah, reading every book that I could get my hands on, and um, but you know it was like I was seeing this other culture from afar, and when at that moment, at that very turbulent moment in my life, when I was in my early thirties, suddenly finding something of my own culture that I could grasp onto and suddenly like have this landscape where I could make music, where I could be creative, where, where I could participate in this culture was like a godsend. Mm -hmm. It, It gave me a definition for myself. It, it gave a home also for all the weird sounds I was making because I was like, okay, I can put this in my compositions. I can find my own way of improvising, you know, studying Dave Tarras and Brandwine very carefully, transcribing them note for note, and then doing improvisations that were based on that as a basis, but then took it way out and used all kinds of microtones and um, natural overtones and weird sounds and circular breathing and then just put that all in that soup and then just being able to say, yeah, this feel, it felt really good. And then uh, one aspect was the cultural aspect of 
playing simchas, mm-hmm. playing celebrations, and people were dancing. And I would play a wedding, and five years later, people would meet me on the street with their kid and said, "You played at our wedding," oh and God. you and it thank you, yeah. and being feeling like I was part of the life cycle, and then. You know, then I, you know, after I played in that band with, um, uh, you know, with Janet and Vicky and Laura back in, you know, around 87, and then I worked with them for a year, and then the Klezmatics heard about me, and I started playing with the Klezmatics, and suddenly we were coming to Europe, and in Europe, we were seen as, um, you know, representing multiculturalism because the Jews, pre-war European Jews were basically the multicultural, let's say, assimilated population. Right. You know, so then representing tolerance and multiculturalism without waving a flag, just playing music, yeah, felt so good to me. So that all of that, and then playing in major festivals and creating my music and having this platform to create my own personal music and have amazing collaborations with people and meet people. And of course, in 92, you know, I had made my first record with the Klezmatics and then Zorn did Kristallnacht and invited me to be part of that. So coming into John's world, which was so amazing. And then of course, well, that was through Anthony too. And then, um, um, and then, um, and then I guess through, that association, my name became, and then I, then John asked me to do uh, the first radical Jewish culture record on Sodic. Klezmer Madness. Klezmer Madness. It's a classic. It's a classic. It's a classic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and then actually following that up with Klezmer New York, which is maybe still my favorite yeah. record that I've done. Yeah. Uh, those two releases on Sodic um, and having that opportunity. And then those Sodic releases led to my association with the Kronos. And so this, so I say to people, ever since I started on Klez, playing Klezmer music, I've been on this great Jewish journey, but not because I think only Jews can play Klezmer, but because I happen to be Jewish and it nourished me so much because I felt completely lost and basically like, you know, I felt like playing classical and freelancing and playing like these, you know, sometimes really amazing concerts and these amazing things, but then sometimes just feeling like a journeyman and, you know, and playing shitty music and, yeah. you know. I mean, how much of it, you know, for American Jews, you know, and of all ages there's a different relationship to this you know my both my my grandparents survived the camps mm. the only surviving people their family wow and growing up it was just you, you didn't talk about it you know yeah like it was we just did not talk about it. i never heard my grandparents say a single word of it and for you to have these parents who were themselves second generation americans who as you said had made a concerted effort to assimilate when you began to find your way to Klezmer and, and this like really rich musical tradition, was there an excitement in discovering something that felt as if it had been hidden from you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and as, as, as I, um, 
you know, as I mentioned to you, you know, when I came to the Lower East Side as a, as a kid, where my grandfather was born on Rivington Street. Um, then coming here to a really a, essentially an ancestral homeland this for me. It. Yeah. Right here. We're in it, yeah. And and feeling like it was a, like really foreign and strange, but very enticing. Yeah. Lonely, weird, mm-hmm. semi-abandoned, and just delicious. And and there was always that feeling. I, I we went to Sammy's Romanian before it became a before it became like a kitsch yeah 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 you know yeah kitsch parlor uh-huh um there's no shtick there the that upstairs part was open and that and i remember one afternoon it might have been like 1962 mm. so we're still there might have even been last flickers of the yiddish theater mm-hmm. at that time mm mm-hmm. Brandwine died in 62. Mm-hmm. So I can see myself as a little kid in the early 60s with the seltzer bottles and the schmaltz containers mm-hmm. on the table. Mm-hmm. And just like, you know, and the fat waiters coming over. and Rough. You know, scary. Scary. Yeah. Scary. Scary. Scary waiters. It's so deep. Yeah. It, this neighborhood is so deep. And I, you know, like I, like I said earlier, I've spent my entire adult life in this neighborhood. I've. I feel like a pretty seasoned lower. Uh, well, I'll say Lois Aida, you know. As <laughs> there, I could point. I could take you to places around here. There, do you ever, did you ever hear of a street called Cannon Street? No. So this building that. Oh we're wait, in, yeah, Can. I think I've passed it. It yeah. was uh, around here, a pretty central street for the tenements that was destroyed when they built all these co-ops that were currently in. These co-ops were built by the Jewish socialist um, uh, workers for, uh, from the Garment Center. Right. There is this over on East Broadway. There's this tiny, I don't, it's, it's the signs in Hebrew, so I don't even know what the fuck it says. It's some sort of prayer center, and beneath the Hebrew sign, it, uh, it, they still have their Cannon Street address on it. Wow. It's yeah. just this beautiful little part of Lower East Side that has been there for at least 75 years and is. Yeah, it's these shards. Yes. And these amazing shards, like, um, I think it's over on. Off of Allen Street, you go from uh, Grand up a block and around the corner, maybe towards Orchard Street, and there's this building. And then people were like, oh, but if you look in the back, you see that it was a shul. Yeah. And, and there were, uh, the, the old uh, Spectrum was in a, in a, a, a shul. Well, you know, I, so I opened Russ and Daughter's Cafe. Right. right. And, you know, I, I, you know, I was there. We, they signed the lease. Pre-demolition, we walked into space. We looked around. We're going to do this here. We're going to do that there. We did a bit of research. One twenty-seven. This is this is sorry, guys. Uh, this is this was one twenty-seven Orchard Street. One twenty-seven Orchard Street was a shul. It was the same shul where Richard Cantor, uh, sorry, Richard Tucker was the Cantor. Oh wow, deep, right? Well, deep, totally deep. Now, what we also learned was that. It was before it was a shul, before it was the shul where Tucker was the cantor, where he learned to sing. Right. It was a Methodist church that came to the Lower East Side with the express purpose of converting Jews coming over from Eastern Europe. (laughs) And the Jews of the neighborhood took it. 
Wow. They, it, it didn't work. And they got the space. They made it into a shul. Right. You know, and it's just like, it. I will never understand, you know, with all the influx to the Lower East Side, I will never understand how anyone could walk these streets with complete, like, unawareness of what was here before. Oh. I mean, uh, this is it. Yeah. No, it's it's totally amazing. And once... And actually, you know, when I started curating the series Tonic... The Klezmer Brunch. Uh, yeah. And I, I started really, like, getting into this neighborhood and walking around and seeing all the old jewels and... Yeah. You, you see a lot of stuff. Um, places that have been turned into artist lofts. Uh, well, a lot of those places you go into, like the... the, the I played... Hanty and I did a duo concert several oh. years ago at this... The Shul on East 6th Street. And it was the series that uh, John Madoff was curating in the right. basement. And the guy that, like, mines the... I don't know what his job title is. Like, I think he's been in that shul for 100 years. Wow. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, he seemed completely oblivious. And, you know, he set us up. We played the craziest music we could. He seemed completely unfazed by it. Now, was that in sixth between, like... Uh... Or A and B a or and something. B, something like that, yeah. It's community synagogue. I remember seeing like an old shul and then suddenly these these murals that were like just so beautiful. Yeah. In one of these old but they're all over. I mean there's well there's quite a few of them, I'd I'd say, yeah. Have you been to the Jewish cemeteries? Sorry guys. In Krakow? Yeah, of course. I remember the first time I went. Well, you've done all kinds of stuff in Krakow. Yeah, uh, I've been there many times. The, yeah, but you know, you go and you put your rock, you put the stones, right. in the Graves, and the guy that I, <laughs> I mean, I'm a wise ass, but I, you know, the first time I went, you know, the guy he let us in, me and my dad, we walked around, we did the pictures, we put the rocks, you know, right. And I looked at him, and I was like, "This is what you do every day. This is just like your gig." <laughs> You're right. You're the guy, huh? Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 No, that's that's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, and and I mean, where are we? We're at you know, we're an hour and forty minutes. Um, did the that knitting factory scene? Uh, was that did that feel? Was that? It was all one thing to you, the Jewish music, and with these conceptualists, these experimentalists. Well, it wasn't exactly all one thing. Um, I, I mean, I think you know, I was like. There was, there was, there was uh, one aspect of it where I was like really learning the music, like note for note from the old records, to try to get as close as I could yeah. to it. Um, to the point where people, you know, I'd play a Jewish wedding and someone would come up to me and say, like, "Hey, you know, um, uh, my." Dave Tarras played for my bar mitzvah and you sound just like Dave oh, Tarras. Yeah. And I knew I didn't, but I knew that I had, you know, I was getting you evoked the right klezmer sound, that yeah. particular sound. Like I hear somebody try to play klezmer who doesn't deal with the sound, who's either primarily a classical player or a jazz player. I'm like, yeah, sound like a fucking classical player, <laughs> fucking jazz player. Yeah. Like you have the wrong sound. Yeah, it's not to say like, um, it's not to say that I I think everyone should sound different. Of course, I mean that was the whole sh thing that I went into. Yeah, but but that there's a certain you know you can have 
different ways of playing classical, like a German sound or a French sound or whatever, but it's still a classical sound. Or mm-hmm. there's still, like you hear jazz clarinet, and you can hear the difference between Bechet and Benny Goodman. Yeah. And, you know, those are all... All the way up to John Carter and Jimmy Jufri. There's exactly. a broad range. That's but but they are jazz yeah. sounds. There's the swing inside the sound. I think that what it is, I think, is that like a classical, there's a kind of this lyricism, how you make the phrases. In jazz, you have almost the drummer inside the sound. And in klezmer, you have also the inflection and also the pinched, like almost the Yiddish, not mm-hmm. Yiddish, but Yiddish, the yeah. little pinched kind of thing like i almost like squeeze my inner cavity to get the klezmer sound i've always felt like jews have a better understanding of language like we're lucky to have this understanding of language that most cultures don't have and i think yiddish is the key because it's this language and and you know let me me stay on this one thought before i share the next one but but because the language itself borrows from other languages to find just the right meaning you know it's it's like a cook you know sort of tasting as they cook and and re-seasoning adjusting you know and and i hear that in the music that same that same sort of like uh that that tastiness you know Mm -hmm. and i wasn't surprised my dad's from communist poland Mm -hmm. he grew up there right and we found he showed me his report card he went to this. Uh, you, you'll probably one of like ten people that know this. There was a school in Woods called the Peret School. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, you know, after the war, um, you know, when he first started, he, my father was born in nineteen forty nine, and when he started school there, it was one of those K through twelve schools. There was like you know four thousand kids in the school. By the time his family left in sixty five, there were like twenty five kids. Right, like one of those kind of things. Right. But his report card, Yiddish was a mandatory class. Right. At this Jewish school. Down the line, F F F F F F F Yiddish A plus. Whoa, you know, because he's a kibitzer. He's you know, he like he gets the language right. of it, and there's right. something. I hear it in the music. The two aren't divorced from each other. Right, definitely, definitely, definitely. That's interesting. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a sound in klezmer. So you know, so getting back to that, your initial question. So, you know, on one hand, I was trying to get that that sound, a kind of a classic klezmer sound, and then put my own voice sort of, not exactly on top of it, but graft it yeah. to that classic sound. Um, then on the other hand, um, you know, so the klez- what, then I joined the klezmatics, and um, we played very frequently at the old knit on Houston. Yeah. And so we were there almost, you know, a lot of the time playing, we played a lot of gigs there. And then also there was this period of time when John was starting after I did, um, uh, Kristallnacht in maybe 94. And then he invited me to do the first Sodic record at the same time he was forming Masada. And he and um, he was doing a weekly gig at Mogador. Yeah, the great Mogador. Yeah, do you do you remember when he did those weekly? That was gigs? before I was yeah. around. But okay, but anyway, he was doing like in '94. He was doing like a weekly gig at Mogador. So he asked me to come and um, play with Masada, but 
he and and actually remember one one day you know I came and played and he he called me and he said you know I, I'm I'm not asking you to join this band, but I I want you to come and play and I said I know you're not asking and I knew I knew he wasn't he yeah. wanted that quartet he wanted the trumpet saxophone like an Ornette Coleman sure. quartet so I knew there was no question of him asking me to join the band but he wanted me to give my vibe to the band. Yeah. So I was happy to do that. Almost as if, wait, you're saying almost as if like, come in and, and I, I, I want this ingredient. Like when you leave, I want something to linger after you leave. Yeah. He wanted yeah. me to just like come and, you know, give, yeah. give my vibe to that band. So yeah. I was happy to be, I'm part of the Masada story. And there is some person who has obsessively recorded John. Bruce Gallanter. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so Bruce has got the tapes. But you he, know that record that John made, Bar Kokhba, the double record yes. of different small yes. chamber ensembles. Yep. And, I mean, some of the stuff you play on there is, to me, like great 20th century Jewish music. Well, absolutely. Playing Abaddon, clarinet and piano. Yeah. It's like, it's... Yeah, the, totally. The, the soul, I mean, you, you play that... I'm, I'm reading this book right now. I'll, I'll show it to you uh, uh, about... It's specifically about clarinets mm-hmm. um about do you, are you familiar with the uh i'm probably mispronouncing it epirus this place in northwestern greece oh, oh, oh ep, you know, epiros epiros yeah are you familiar with the music from epiros Sh- holy shit yeah so this book just came out about this guy who went there and collected all the 78s you know he wrote the, his experience of this book wow and a lot of what he's talking about in the book is musical authenticity mm. and how music uh it gets divorced from authenticity when it stops serving a purpose to the community that birthed it. Right. Um, you know, and the music of this region is pure because the community around it relies on it for more than just entertainment. It's nourishment. It's, it's an essential part of what makes up this community. Right. So I'm thinking about that a lot. And a piece like, you know, what you guys made on that record I could play that for a Jew a thousand years old as I could for like a 16-year-old Jew, and we're going to have a shared experience with it. Right. There is no, that's young music, that's old music. It's, right. it's a very universal music that, that, at least from my experience, touched a very special part of my soul. Well, you know, it's an interesting, you bring up an interesting topic because you were saying, is it, it was it the same for me? You know, uh, so again, I'm, 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 I'm working on the classic sound. I'm playing with the klezmatics and we're developing like our own take. Uh, we play in the knitting, fa- you know, old knitting factory. I meet Zorn. Um, you know, then I did Kristallnacht with him the some of the Bar Kokhba stuff. Yeah. Um so you know it started to, you know, melt and become this one world. But you know, that that topic that you bring up about the um the authenticity has always been something that is um that has engaged me very much because yeah. when I heard that Duke Ellington at Fargo, I was like, this is complete authenticity. This is a big band in the heart of the big band era playing for these people in a dance state. And this string of little tunes is creating a symphony, an mm-hmm. extended composition, an incredible portrait 
of America and African-American culture. Like, the fact is, Barney Begard is allowed to noodle through the entire thing. Mm-hmm. He's just noodling. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. amazing, like, <laughs> this oodles and noodles. Yeah. You know, it's unbelievable. So there's that, again, um, when you hear the broadcasts of, like, Count Basie from 1937, and you hear the crowd talking to the band, and you hear, you know, the rhythm sections playing, and you hear people just, you know, chatting with them, and you you know that the Lindy Hoppers are making up new dances at the Savoy Ballroom right there at that moment. You know, so here we are, then there's this Klezmer revival, um, and there are these Klezmer camps, and people are learning Klezmer and learning to dance this stuff, and then... So that whole idea of authenticity, so that, that world, that world where Brandwine and Taris were playing, and even up through the 40s with an immigrant community, that world is, is, is dead now. Mm-hmm. And to try to uh, sort of go like, oh, okay, well, we're, I mean, I guess where it was is where, you know, then the Klezmer police come in, and then they're like, well, that's, that's wrong. That's yeah, not yeah. authentic, and 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 so then people are saying, no, no, we gotta play it like it was played, you know, in nineteen twenty. I don't know. I just wrestle with that stuff with those discussions, which get it gets complicated because I think that some of us who have been making music and playing here and there, I think where it's the most successful is where almost we create our own authenticity mm-hmm. as we go along. Because then there is this world and this audience that we build and then this people who want to connect on that level. Um, but it's complicated. You know, I, I, I get sometimes wistful when I think of like Epiros or I think of like a Hungarian community where people grow up learning all the dances like there are these Hungarian Americans and they get Mm -hmm. together for a dance house Um, but like where you're where you're in this insular community um, that's a very special thing but but I, I thought that the trap if in playing Jewish music is try, is to try to pretend that the 21st century doesn't exist right um and then just go like oh well we're we're still in that insular community we're not right we, music has to live in a um in a different way yeah um and and it's always something i play with in my mind and wrestle with i mean to me, in that way, experimentation and conceptualism helps bring that forward. Yeah. It helps carry it forward. I agree. And it doesn't always succeed necessarily, but to me, question marks have always been more important than periods. Well, it was interesting. I played a concert once many years ago in Great Barrington, and there were two reviews. One was <laughs> by my friend Seth Rogavoy. Oh, yeah. Klezmer aficionado yeah, scholar. Right. And Seth said, yeah, this was killing. I loved it. You know, 
and it was uh, so thought provoking and different. And then there was this other guy who's like basically like, yeah, what is Krakauer doing? And he he. Uh, this isn't Klezmer. I have a thousand Klezmer records and I know my Klezmer and this isn't Klezmer and this is horrible and then and and go jump off a bridge. <laughs> yeah. And it was just sort of like to me uh one condemns the music to death. Yeah. You know, it's as if you said, "Oh, well, you know, King Oliver in 1923, that's jazz and nothing else right. after that. I'm going to play like the old King Oliver. Well, then you end up like Turk Murphy or something. Right. Like 1949, you know, wearing a fucking fireman's no, hat. you're nuts. You're a crazy person yeah, at that point. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, this has been great. Yeah. Thank you for coming to the Lower East Side and talking with me. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, I didn't even get into, like, you I, know, Abraham Incorporated and, like... There's a lot to talk about. Yeah. I mean, you know, just, yeah, to wrap it up. Yeah. I mean, just to have the experience to, like, work with um, amazing composers like John Zorn, like this kid Vlad Marhulitz, who wrote a clarinet concerto for me. Um, and he's like a Polish-Jewish heritage growing up in Poland, me growing up in America. He comes to America. I say, hey, write a clarinet concerto. And bang. He took uh, it very seriously. He took it seriously. He goes to study with Corigliano. Corigliano gives it to the Detroit Symphony. I premiere it with Detroit. Then This is like a series of events that are yeah, you know, so like uh, Vlad Marhulitz, this guy Matthew Rosenblum, who also went to high school with me and Anthony, just wrote this wild clarinet concerto that has a field recording of his grandmother singing in Ukrainian, who fled a pogrom in 1919 with the family silverware strapped to her legs, pregnant with his mother, gave birth to his mother in the woods with six other kids, like, hanging around, um, um, and the whole piece like mixes snippets of symphony fantastique and and klezmer and like insane you know microtones. Anyway, it's a wild piece. Um, so Matthew just wrote this. We just recorded it. So working with these composers, you know, from from Zorn and Coleman and and Matthew Rosenblum and yeah. Vlad Marhulitz and working with these and and of course Golikov and working with these great composers. And then, you know, you know, I grew up uh, in high school, hitting, you know, like, hit me Fred, funky D, down D. And, you know, this guy's like a myth, um, like, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. He's like a mythological figure. And then being able to, you know, with my friend so-called make samples and beats. And then I was drawn to him hearing his shit. And then we worked together. I brought him into my band as a featured artist, and then we, you know, were talking one night and said, "What, what should we do?" And so-called said, "Oh, how about invite Fred Wesley?" So then we form Abraham Incorporated. Fred Wesley, I think he was perplexed. What do these crazy Jews want from me? Yeah. But you know, then he came on board. So to be able to mix klezmer and funk and hip hop. I mean, it's a life's work. Yeah, and then to be doing this duo with Kathleen Tag, who then took my sound and, you know, arranged it, and she made, like, a whole orchestra out of samples of, of like, piano, plucked piano, slapped piano, um, piano with the cloth on the strings, and yeah. she made a whole orchestral texture. 
and then that's breath and hammer. So all of these things to work with these people. So I say, you know, I happen to be Jewish. That's why it's a Jewish journey. But it took me on this uh, journey of cultural heritage, journey of music, journey to have this amazing playground uh, to work with. And then and also, you know, at times be part of the Jewish life cycle. It's kind of been it's an amazing ride. It is an amazing ride. Yeah. And and do you still go play that festival in Krakow? I was just there last summer. Yeah. 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 It was great. And that's got to, I mean, feel like a, I've been to Krakow a number of times, never to play, only to visit. And uh, it's got to feel like something of a, a victory. Well, exactly. That's exactly the right word because, yeah. you know, I grew up reading articles in the Encyclopedia Britannica about the city of my name about yeah. Krakow but I thought it's behind the Iron Curtain I'll never go there this is like in the 60s yeah and of course of course people went to Eastern Europe all the time sure but I didn't know that and so, so in my mind you know I would see like television commercials for Radio Free Europe and then these like Czech people like huddled around the radio and whatever all the American propaganda um, but but then when I came to Poland in 1992 as a member of the Klezmatics, we were introduced one by one, you know, and Janusz Machuch, the uh, head of the Krakow Jewish Culture Festival, brought me up and he said, here's David Krakauer. And I went to the microphone and I said, my name is David Krakauer and welcome to my city. Ooh. And it was so beautiful. And people, they erupted. Didn't they, they erupted. They yeah. were. They freaked out. It's funny, you know. My last name is a is a Polish spelling of a Jewish name. My family's from Poland, right? And every time I've played in Poland, and I'm not playing Jewish music, I'm not playing Jewish festivals, but the people of the city have given me, or they're wherever I am, um, extra special treatment. Yeah. They, you know, and I'm not even talking about Jewish people. I'm talking about Polish people who, sure, who that there's some there's there is. Um, it's certainly I've had my issues uh, being a Polish Jew, my historical relationship with Poland. When I've experienced that, though, it it, it challenges um, short sightedness that I have to feel embraced at a country in a country where historically my family has not been so embraced. No, I mean, and the and the thing that's interesting is, you know, people will say, why why do you play in Poland? Poland is a Jewish graveyard. And of course, in many ways, it is. But the people who are doing good stuff there, like Janusz, the Krakow Jewish Culture Festival, like uh, my friends at the Borderlands Foundation, yeah. the Pogranicza Foundation, um putting together amazing projects, recognizing that the Jewish soul was ripped out of Poland yeah. and that that created a, a, a horrible, horrible wound. And those people who embrace that, you know, it's, it's a metaphor for hope. When you can think of Krakow... Um, in 1942 and you know and thinking about people being deported Auschwitz one hour away the whole thing and then in the 90s and 2000s 
people dancing and celebrating. Now Poland is, you know, virtually fascist state, but still this is permitted, at least for now, this expression of Jewish culture. And that gives me hope for reconcil you know, for redemption in yeah. general. Yeah. And and so that's the reason that I happily go to Poland. Because yeah, I mean, the first time I went to Poland, you know, there's the little statue, the little of the Jew, yeah, with yeah, it's like, little, like with, little piccaninny, basically, yeah, and the yeah. springs for feet, and you push it, and it davens, yeah, or the or the or the uh, you know the the rabbi holding a coin and looking at it such lovingly, you know, it's such a trip, right? But so you get all of that, and then the and then in Krakow there are all these cafes. Have where, you eaten at that restaurant on Atefka? I haven't been to Anatevka. <laughs> they have someone sitting like above the tables playing fiddle. It's fucking hilarious. Yeah. So there it yeah. is. And that kitchen people, um, you know, I went with my daughter who was eight years old at the time. And there's this woman, you know, singing, you know, and my daughter who didn't know anything about the background, she said, daddy, this is so depressing. And I said, yeah, <laughs> this is really Lean depressing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, but not like good depressing, like, wow, that singer is, you so know, powerful. so soulless and cynical and, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, so there's that. And then there's good people with the most, uh, how can I say the most, um, sincere intentions yeah. And and really hooked into something important. So um you know, that's that's interesting. I mean, as the world takes a really fucked up turn right now, uh, we can only cling to these moments of of uh, redemption. Mm -hmm. I you know, and these these examples of mm -hmm. redemption and of people doing good things, and that's that's all that any of us can do is to just keep trying to do good things. You know, as as a counterforce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's important to put color into the world. Yep, absolutely. Thank you, David. Thank David Trackauer. <laughs> yeah. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Dave Krakauer. No one does it like Krakauer. He's a good man. He's a mensch. And he plays the motherfucking living shit motherfucker out of the clarinet. Was that enough curse words for you? I dug that. That was one for me. Hope you guys enjoyed it too. He's a living legend, that guy. If you're interested in what he's up to, go to davidkrakauer.com. Go to the Patreon. Do what you got to do. And uh, enjoy your lives. Hope you guys are good. Hope you're hanging in. Um, stay positive. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye.